Good afternoon. I'm Claire Eager from uh, the English Department at the University of Virginia, and I will be introducing Catherine Reagan, uh, your moderator for today. Uh, Catherine is the Ernst Stern Class of 56 Curator of Rare Books and Manuscripts and Assistant Director for Collections, Division of Rare and Manuscript Collections at Cornell University. A Bay Area native, her undergraduate degree is from the University of California at Berkeley, and her master's degree is from Columbia University, where she was a member of the last graduating class of the Rare Book Program at Columbia's School of Library Service. Prior to working at Cornell, she worked at the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York. She teaches history of the book for Cornell University's Department of English, serves on the faculty of Rare Book School and the Colorado Antiquarian Book Seminar, was chair and was chair of the Rare Books and Manuscripts section of ACRL, a division of the American Library Association in 2005 and 2006. Thanks, everybody. Um, good afternoon. I'm your moderator today, and it'll be my honor to introduce our distinguished collection of panelists today um, on the topic of ethics and responsibility in the bibliosphere. Um, so in our allied professions, we're all guided by multiple ethical standards and statements. Many of these statements cite overreaching values like fairness and intellectual freedom and professional excellence, collaboration, responsible stewardship, inclusion, respect for individual rights, and equal and open access, all inspirational and lofty goals to live up to. But our rapidly evolving professional landscapes often require us to navigate new territory faster than the professional guidelines are published, and our national standards are typically broad often lacking in real-life case studies and practical examples of application. This is where we turn to each other, our fellow colleagues, scholars, and practitioners. We all encounter and grapple with the ethical dimensions of our work. We establish principles of open and scholarly access and new publishing models. We seek to develop systems and cultures that promote diversity and broader representation. We select topics of study and approaches to teaching that are responsive to contemporary society and develop outreach programs that seek to reach as many constituencies as possible. We strive for transparency and even application of our professional practices to be proactive in sharing information and in establishing working partnerships with communities to actively document those whose voices have been overlooked or marginalized. This is complex and intersecting ethical territory, but our speakers today are up to the task. Today's panelists will each address one area of consideration of our allied professions that touch on an ethical dimension of our work in the bibliosphere. I'm just going to introduce them very quickly by name. They're assembled in the front row, and then um, as each of them come up to the podium, I'll quickly introduce them uh, a, little, a little bit more at length. Uh, first, we have Satsuko uh, Yakumama, uh, uh, who's a PhD candidate in the Department of English at University of Maryland. She's going to talk about negotiating open access. Um, Elizabeth Ott, um, interim rare book curator um, at UNC Chapel Hill, will talk about ethical collecting and special collections librarianship. Todd Pattison, a senior book conservator uh, at Northeast Documentation Conservation Center, and Rare Book School faculty will talk about conservation of American bindings. 
Nina Mazinski, proprietor of Mazinski Rare Books, um, will talk about artifacts or time machines, examples from the field. Eliza Gilligan, a book conservator uh, at University of Virginia Library, will talk about choices in book con conservation and the impact on the social history of the book. And Jeremy DeBell, uh, who's Director of Communications and Outreach at Rare Book School, will talk about announcing major acquisitions a responsibility. So a great uh, and diverse um, group of speakers. I'll um, introduce Satsuko in a, li a little bit more detail. Again, she's a PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Maryland College Park. She works as a project manager on the Dickinson Electronic Archives and the Digital Frost Project. Her most recent publications include a history of digitally enabled prosody analysis for Stanford's Arcade, an open invitation to the development of Frost Public Humanities platform for the Robert Frost Review. She's going to talk about, about negotiating open access for all interested parties. Please welcome Satsuko. the lovely introduction. Negotiating open access for all interested parties. Something is easier said than done. Open access may be one such academic best practice when developing a digi digital scholarly edition of primary resources. Today I'd like to share with you an ongoing effort of the Digital Frost project that I coordinate and how we've been working towards open access. The goal of this presentation is to showcase some of the approaches that worked well for us when navigating the dynamism of stakeholders. I hope some of my experiences will serve as a stepping stone for a similar project. The Digital Frost project aims to build a cross-institutional platform whereby Frost readers can consult in a single setting the audio the visual and audiovisual resources that are currently stored at multiple archives. Here is the blueprint for the overall architecture of the platform. I am in charge of building the upper, la upper layer, which draws upon the digitized resources of participating collections. The project stakeholders include the estate of Robert Frost, the poet's friends and families, his scholarly editors, a special, library, a special collection librarians, and users who are both scholarly and otherwise. My role as a project coordinator is to work out different interests among these stakeholders. Open access was one of the first tasks that I needed to tackle. For our participating archivists, the principles of open access came most naturally. That is, their collections must be accessible to the users without fees and without needless copyright and licensing restrictions. What I wasn't sure was the estate stance. I'm hoping to achieve open access for the users to engage with the frost resources and for the archivists to justify their cost of digitization I took the following steps prior to meeting the estate for the first time. Step number one, 
Letting go of the gatekeeper access seeker dyad. First of all, I sought to develop a collaborative relationship with the estate. Upon writing to the estate for the first time, I composed a 10-page project proposal. In it, I proposed a co collaborative partnership rather than asking for permission to proceed. Every so often, uh, the constitutional provision of US copyright law is discussed in terms of its inept tension between private and public interests of the work. Indeed, Mark Rose, in his Authors and Owners, The Invention of Copyright, offers a literary and legal genealogy of copyright, featuring the conflict between authors and printers in 16th century Britain. When legal scholars such as Peter Jasty and Lawrence Lee seek, seek to advocate for fair use as a means to reinstall a balance in a copyright-related conflict of interest, the underlying assumption is that the copyright owners are gatekeepers and that they tend to impose aggressive, one-sided argument for their exclusive right. While such critical argument is valid and benefits users, I argue that that kind of confrontational language uh, contributes little to foster collaboration. Of course, the estate would still need to grant permission, but I sought to frame a dialogue in a way that enables every party to seek a publishing model that is mutually beneficial. Step two, letting go of the assumption that open access is self-explanatory. <laughs> Owing to the collective advocacy within academia, open access has earned growing recognition as a term. What is seldom discussed, however, uh, are the following two facts about open access. First, open access honors rather than rebukes legally protected exclusive rights of the authors under the existing US copyright laws. As Peter Suba notes, open access tries to balance the private and public interests by enabling authors to tailor their exclusive rights. That way, the public may en engage with the work beyond what fair use enables, while authors themselves may enjoy some exposure uh, of their work. Secondly, open access is a spectrum and that it needs to be implemented according to the specificities of a project. Prior to studying the open access, even I couldn't easily articulate the difference between gold OA, green OA, gratis OA, and libre OA, and that only the latter two are relevant to a production of a scholarly edition. Therefore, I decided to compose an access model report for the estate, detailing the history of open access, the relevant legal and financial considerations, as well as various success models employed by existing digital scholarly editions, such as the Shelley Godwin Archive, Emily Dickinson Archive, and Folger Digital Texts. In this manner, I've made my need to request for open access as a process through which both the estate and I can explore what might be the best publishing model for all interested parties. 
I'm hoping to set a sound precedent of how to publish copyrighted resources in an open access manner. When done right, I trust the project may honor Robert Frost, the public poet who wanted to be a poet for all sorts and kinds, as well as make a much needed argument that the copyright shouldn't make us differ from working with the 20th century American authors. If some of you are working to negotiate terms with the copyright holders, I'm happy to share my access model report. Um, this is all for now. Thanks for attention. <laughs> I hope um, everyone is writing down some questions. We'll have um, a chance at the end to ask all the speakers. Um, next is Elizabeth Ott, who is Interim Curator of Rare Books at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. She recently completed her PhD in English Literature at the University of Virginia, where her doctoral work focused on the history of subscription and circulating libraries in 19th century England. Elizabeth is going to talk about ethical collecting within special collections librarianship. Thank you so much um, for having me be here, and uh, I'm going to pull up my papers on my computer. Um, so the topic of this panel, Ethics and Responsibility in the Bibliosphere, encompasses a truly vast set of concerns, and I'm not going to even try to cover all of them. Uh, I wanted to approach this topic specifically from the point of view of curatorial work, that is to say, librarians like myself who are engaged in acquiring materials through gift and purchase for institutions. In my case, a large academic research library that is part of a public university. So that's the point of view that I'm coming from. Um, I am pretty aware that what I'm saying today is not particularly novel. I think these are conversations we're already engaged in. Um, and I, in fact, hope that what I say resonates with some of the other conversations we've already started having at this conference. Um, and I also want to preface what I am going to say with uh, kind of two assumptions that I'm making um, throughout my comments. The first is that um, you can have a, a strong moral conviction and be doing the right thing but not be acting in an ethical way, right? So it, uh, good intentions do not always make for good practice. Um, the second is that it's the curator's role to make choices and that there's not any um, uh, way out of that. Uh, eventually, you must make a choice. You're making choices about what you collect and what you don't collect. You're making choices about how you represent those collections, and you're making choices about what communities you engage in. And, um, and that's your job. And that's not inherently a bad thing. It just means you've got to make some choices. OK. In recent years, libraries and other cultural heritage institutions have been called upon to address the insufficient diversity of our holdings. Library collections reflect the values, the preoccupations, biases, preferences, obsessions, etc., etc., of the historical moment when they were built. Given the fraught history of the United States, especially its history of silencing and marginalizing people of color from the dominant historical narrative, this means that for many of us, we've inherited collections built by and about white people and their history. 
We confront a fundamental problem as we decide how to steward these collections. How can we rectify a perception of the past that is exclusively white or predominantly white? And how do we build on the collecting strategies of our predecessors while at the same time challenging them? The scholars, researchers, faculty, and students who use our collections, I would argue, are already engaged in this work, and their scholarship demands a fuller and more diverse representation of global human history in all its multiplicity. So how can we provide it to them? I see this, and I'm sure many of you in the audience do as well, as a moral imperative. This is something we must do, but it's one that is fraught with ethical complications. One ethical complication that concerns me is how scholarly and institutional appetite for the cultural products of historically marginalized populations affects the market value of these materials and who profits in this exchange. I want to draw a comparison here between the gentrification of neighborhoods, so white um, folks moving into previously historically um, non-white neighborhoods and the rents go up and um, the people who've historically occupied those spaces don't profit from it with what's happening um, in uh, the book market as cultural institutions begin to build collections around previously neglected categories of history um, like for example slave narratives um, prices begin to creep up I feel a lot of conflicting ways about how the market affects institutional collecting because in some ways money is a reflection of the historical and research value we assign to objects. And so in some sense it's right that if we're willing to spend however many dollars per year collecting the works of William Shakespeare, we should be willing to pony up equally impressive sums for the work of Frederick Douglass. But again, who profits? Who sees the, the result of that money? When I see for sale, for example, posters and ephemera from ACT UP, the activist group that aggressively brought attention to the AIDS crisis, I do wonder if the people who produced those slogans and orchestrated those die-ins ever received compensation. Money in the market are ever-present in our acquisitions processes, whether we purchase materials at auctions or from dealers, or receive them as donations and gifts in kind. And unsurprisingly, those who already occupy positions of privilege are in the best position to capitalize on institutional desire to diversify collections. This is an example from personal experience, but a few months back I received a phone call from an individual in possession of several cipher books that had been in his family for several generations. He was interested in finding an institution to buy them and wanted a not insubstantial money, uh, uh, sum of money for them. The value of the cipher books, he explained to me over the phone, is that they included information about enslaved individuals that had been owned by his family. Names, ages, occupations, and so on. In seeking out records of the slave trade, institutions whose goal may be a very laudable one of erasing a lacuna in African-American ancestry and history, we also create this circumstance where someone whose current wealth is built on a legacy of slavery can, in the present time, uh, contemplate continuing to cash in on that history of oppression. So what strategies might we employ for trying to change the circumstances of our collecting? Some, librarians are, some libraries have begun to address these concerns by moving towards shared collecting models, such as community archiving. In a community archiving model, institutions collaborate with communities by distributing the responsibility of curation. Communities decide what is valuable, how it should be commemorated, preserved, described, and accessed. 
some community archiving models also challenge the notion that collecting necessarily involves the transfer of materials to an institutional collection. Instead, archivists consult with community members and provide them with tools, best practices, and resources to archive their own history without an explicit or implicit promise that those archives will become part of the institution. So no longer an exchange of cultural goods, community archiving um, ameliorates a sense that institutions arriving in marginalized communities are there to extract cultural resources without investing in the community itself. I've been really interested in hearing about community archiving, but um, I'm also deeply wonder. Um, it's a great model for modern archival collections, but what about rare books? Um, is there an equivalent or comparable collecting model that works for antiquarian materials? How do we begin to find collaborative models for collecting the deep history of our pasts because diversity doesn't start in the 20th century? Um, I have ideas, though not answers, and I hope that you will ask me some questions so we can discuss strategies for ethical collecting in the Q&A. Next is Todd Pattison. Um, he has a BA in Art History from Nazareth College and an MLIS from the University of Alabama. He teaches a course on American Publishers Bindings in the 19th century at Rare Book School at the University of Virginia, and he is the Senior Book Conservator at the Northeast, Documentation, uh, Northeast Document Conservation Center. He's going to talk about a profitable examination, the binding of six months in a covet. Can't see the cursor anymore. Sorry, technology is not my strong suit. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's so tiny. I lost it again. Do you want to present interview? Yeah. Oh, there it is. Thank you. So I, I sat in this room in the last session, and there was a very interesting discussion that resonated with me a lot because I like to smell books before I use them. Um, I think that uh, books have their own distinctive smell. And it is as much a part of my experience with the volume as other tangible elements, such as the texture and drape of the paper, the tone of the ink, and the feel of the covering material. All of these are part of the physical book, and they can't be conveyed in a digital surrogate. Of course, I freely admit that the physical aspect of most books have relatively limited value compared with the textural information that they contain. But it makes me wonder, if I'm missing the smell of a digital surrogate, in a digital surrogate, what else are we all missing out on? <clears throat> Today I'd like to discuss what can be learned about the binding of six months in a convent that we can only get through studying the original physical objects. This book was one of the first to be bound in Boston using case construction, and the case was decorated with a new technology, machine stamping, with the title in gold on the spine and the upper and lower covers blind stamped with an arabesque border. 
the binder, Benjamin Bradley, included his name on the covers in the border design. Also one of the first times that a Boston binder signed in the stamping of a cloth-bound book. A single sentence printed more than a hundred years ago made me curious about this binding. When the publisher Thomas Kroll transferred their bookbinding operations from Boston to New York in 1900, a one-page article in Publishers Weekly reviewed the company's history. The firm originally started as a bookbindery set up by Benjamin Bradley in 1832, and the article states, quote, Mr. Bradley's first profitable stroke was his work upon the covers of Six Months in a Convent, a volume which had a remarkable sale for its day. End quote. Six Months in a Convent, printed and bound 65 years earlier, before Kroll was even born, is the only title mentioned in the article. At least five copies of this book have been digitized, shown as the title page from one of the two copies in the collection of the New York Public Library that were digitized by Google Books. You can just make out the New York Public Library perforated ownership stamp to the right of the date at the bottom of the page. The book was issued in two variant bindings, which you wouldn't know from an examination of those five digitized copies as they have either been rebound or have the previously shown binding. Both of these bindings are also signed by Bradley, with his name at the bottom of the central panel stamps, the lyre on the left, and the fruit basket on the right. As with many books from this early industrialized era of book production, there is also variety in the cloth used to cover the bindings. Additional information that is not available from the digital surrogates. At this point, you might be thinking, Oh, binding variants, all well and good, but what can they really tell us? To me, if we could somehow arrange the bindings in a timeline to see which ones were produced earlier and which later, I think they might be able to tell us a lot. Fortunately, the publishers had the foresight to produce stereotype plates to print the text of six months. This would seem to make all the copies identical but in fact, we can notice many differences in the text by looking at a large number of volumes. The stereotype plates are made of, out of metal, but they are still physical objects subject to alteration, either intentional or from damage during use or storage. This allows us to take what might otherwise be a random collection of original bindings and order them roughly by sequence of production. The first difference that can be noted by comparing volumes is a change in the New York publisher on the title page. Some list Levitt, Lord & Company, while others list Nelson Hall. Something as obvious as this can be gleaned from the digitized copies, as three have the first publisher and two have the second. To many librarians, these are two different books, or at least variants of the same book, and they might reasonably hold both copies. But it seems to me that very few library collections would keep multiple copies of this book based upon variants of the binding. A close examination of multiple copies shows less intentional alterations. The upper version of page 187 has problems with the applications of the ink along the right-hand side, which could vary from copy to copy randomly, 
but the bottom version of the page clearly shows a large scratch or gouge in the plate, which appears on many copies. Obviously, text printed without this flaw would be earlier impressions than ones that had the damage. Some damage is quite easy to locate, and it makes one wonder how they could have missed seeing the loss of a page number. Other damage, such as the loss of text at the bottom of page 68, seems just as obvious. This is not a problem with ink application. At some point, the plate was damaged, and every copy printed afterwards has missing text. Working with Ariel Middleman, a cataloger at the library company, we were able to identify 34 points of damage that were deemed significant. This work was done using more than 40 physical copies and not the five digital surrogates. Once the damaged points had been located, we were able to use the information to order the digital copies. One at the New York Public Library has only two points of damage, making it quite early in the production. There is a point of damage, a control, that was noted in every copy examined and was likely in the stereotype plate from the time it was manufactured. The plate damage allowed us to determine that Levitt Lord and Company was the first New York publisher afterwards supplanted by Nelson Hall. Advertisements printed on yellow paper listing other books from the main Boston publisher have been found in two copies. The publisher probably had a limited number of advertisements printed and included them in bindings until they ran out. The copies with these ads have only one or two points of damage, which marks them as being from the beginning of the production. If we had to rely solely on the digital copies, we wouldn't know about the publisher's advertisements at all, as none of the copies contained them. The digital surrogates also can't show us the hurried nature of production of these volumes. Six months in a convent sold more than 50,000 50, volumes by the later part of 1835, when production likely ceased. This detail of damage to the foredge of a sewn text, which occurred prior to its being cased into the cover, shows the speed with which the binders were working. A contemporary newspaper account details the rate of production. Bradley's Bindery, with a workforce of only 40 employees, was turning out between 1,000 and 1,300 finished bindings in a day. These are astonishing numbers for a bindery at this time period, especially one that had just recently switched to case binding and stamp decoration. I think these production numbers bear repeating. The bindery was turning out more than 6,000 volumes a week. It's no wonder that there were problems with some of the bindings, including cloth turn-ins that were too short to be covered by the paste-downs, as seen in these details, or wrinkles in the cloth, as seen here. There is a fourth variant binding of six months in a convent, although it is almost indistinguishable from the common binding, as it has the same arabesque border. The only difference is the lack of the signature in the blind stamping. It would appear that Bradley had this die cut specifically for six months in a convent, but he didn't have it in time to stamp the first few bindings. The lyre and the fruit basket that we saw earlier were used instead. When they did get the arabesque border stamp without the signature at this point, they used it on a small quantity of books. So far, only two have been located that do not have the signature. 
The Bradley name seems to have been quickly cut into the dye, showing the importance he placed on using this new technology to advertise his business. In this way, Bradley was far ahead of publishers at this time period. While he was paid to do the stamping which included his name, uh, American publishers rarely paid to have their own name put on the covers of cloth-bound books in the 1830s. The study of the bindings on six months in a convent highlights the limitations of over-reliance on digital surrogates, or even the obsession that seems to pervade the antiquarian book world for condition. This particular binding is far from pretty, and the condition would make most private collectors, or even many institutional ones, balk at acquiring it. If it was in slightly worse shape and needed conservation, it might be a candidate for deaccession, as there are digital copies that can be less expensively provided to library patrons. But it helps tell the story of six months in a convent and its importance to Bradley's business. If in, a future, if in the future a handful of supposed duplicate physical copies serve as mere backups to the more important digital ones, we will lose the ability to learn from the study of large number of books, thereby compromising our ability to learn from big data. The bindings that Bradley was putting on six months at a convent and others his firm produced in 1835 were significant to his business. Bradley signed bindings on at least 15 other editions that year, including the supplement to Six Months in a Convent and the parody Six Months in a House of Corrections, which was issued by another publisher but bound using the same arabesque dye. To me, I wonder which was the true profitable stroke. The $5,000 Benjamin Bradley was paid for binding Six Months in a Convent or the aggressive marketing of his business by including the binder name on more than 45,000 copies of that book. And if you want to know more about this story, it's in uh, volume three of Suave Mechanicals from the Legacy Press. Now I need to exit. <laughs> Escape. Sorry for going over a little. So while they're closing that out, uh, next is Eliza Gilligan. Um, we're going to talk about another dimension of book conservation. Um, she is the senior book conservator at the University of Virginia Library, where she's developed an active internship program for aspiring conservation students. She's also become recognized mentor for graduate students. She has held leadership roles in the Washington Conservation Guild and the American Institute for Conservation, and has served as the managing editor of the book and paper group annual. Her training as a conservator comes um, via her MLIS from the University of Texas at Austin and from Rare Book School. Oh, I was going to use... Oh, oh, sorry, I forgot. That's okay. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Wow, look at all those people. Awesome. Um, let's see. 
Through the Fold, Choices in Book Conservation and the Impact on the Social History of the Book. Illustrated books are often among the highest use books in a research library collection. They represent high points in scientific publishing, such as Robert Hooke's Micrographia, glorious botanicals in Philip Miller's Gardner's Dictionary, or achievements in printing, such as camera work by Alfred Stieglitz. For book conservators, these books present challenges both in terms of the physical needs of a book damaged by time and use, but also in terms of preserving the traces of the choices made by the craftsmen who produced them. The use could be in a classroom, exhibit, or as part of a digital reproduction process, and in most cases it is the access to the illustrations that is the driver. This often means that the damage to an illustrated book is greater at the illustrations. Fold-out maps are torn along the folds or damaged by a user who did not carefully refold the map. A book spine or sewing structure is more likely to crack where it has been adapted to accommodate the thickness of a folded plate or the bulk of an image printed on paper that is heavier than the text paper. Innovations in the process of printing illustrations led to bigger images with greater detail. The shift to intaglio printing on single leaf plates from woodcut illustrations within the body of the text uh, brought structural challenges to the traditional Western binding structures that affect the durability of the book. The kinetics of Western books work best when the paper is of even weight throughout the text block and the signatures are sewn through the fold. But this is often not the case with illustrated books. Thus, the innovations that led to greater interest and higher use of a book present great challenges to the book conservator charged with ensuring access to original illustrations in an original bound format. Um, some may say that conservation can disrupt, disrupt the historical integrity of the book as a physical object. This picture of a 1565 imprint from the UVA's typography collection is a great example of everyone's worst book nightmare come true. And uh, for those of you who can't read the, the uh, handwriting, uh, the, it says, this copy was presented by Mrs. Rossetti to her son, W.M. Rossetti. There was an inscription to that effect removed inadvertently by the binder who removed the end paper when he rebacked this book in 1926. <laughs> but this isn't conservation treatment. <laughs> yeah. um, and in fact, this is now preserved as an artifact. But um, conservation treatment is the preservation of access to the book as a comprehensive artifact. Conservators recognize that every book contains traces of many processes related to publication, printing, and binding. Conservators witness the choices made in the physical production of a book and present a unique opportunity to document those choices and share them with the allied research community. For the purposes of today's talk, I'd like to look at three conservation treatments where the books required significant intervention, but I would argue that this intervention enhances a researcher's ability to engage, especially when it comes to illustrated books. Let's start with a look at Palladio's Four Books of Architecture, printed in Venice in 1581. It's a text block of handmade paper with woodcut illustrations in line with the text. No foldouts, and all of the pages are the same weight and dimension. As you can see from the picture of the spine before treatment, 
There is not much left of the spine. There is hardly any sewing thread, and therefore no clues as to the former sewing pattern. However, a date due slip in the back of the book was a clear indicator of how the damage occurred. Prior to being in special collections, this book spent at least 50 years in the circulating fine arts library at UVA, where the students could take it home or mash it down on a photocopier to get a good copy of the illustrations or text, and they would have had to mash it down since the book has very narrow gutter margins. Uh, but now that the book was safely part of special collections, I could be confident that the book would receive much more careful handling should it be called for use, and so my conservation treatment consisted of washing, mending, re-sewing, and a new binding. Um, and as you can see from the, uh, and there's the new sewing and it's all mended together, and there's the, the new binding. And you can see that um, it's got wonderful openability and the availability of the text and illustrations is as good as ever. Um, there's no concern with pages falling out or, or getting pulled out inadvertently. But what do we get when we move on to Robert Hooke's Micrographia? UVA's 1667 copy was brought to my attention by a faculty member who said the condition was delicate. And as you can see from the before treatment images, there is no leather remaining over the whole book. The boards are stained and moldy. There's not a single intact sewing cord, and there was hardly any remaining thread. I have no idea what happened to this book, but it must have been dramatic and wet. <laughs> the copper plates of the 1665 edition have been used again in 1667 with the illustrations printed on separate sheets of paper. The plates were trimmed to size and tipped in place as the book was bound. Most of the plates are the same size as the text pages and they function easily with the movement of the rest of the book. However, the illustrations of the flea and the louse are more problematic to, to access. The images are much, much greater than life-size, and the plates unfold well beyond the margins of the book. The flea and the louse plates have been folded in many different pack patterns over the years, and when I encountered them, they were two small, bulky packets that distorted the middle of the book. The book had been in high use for many years, despite its condition, but conservation treatment offered an opportunity to make it much safer for the long term, with the goal of making sure that a user could flip through it and look at a single page or a fold-out plate with almost equal ease. Uh, the structure here wasn't much different than that of the Palladio, since the majority of the book was text pages, and for the plates, their attachment could be recreated. Albeit a little more securely by adding tissue hinge on the verso of the plate and having it extend through the gutter so that the hinge would be caught in the sewing of the text block. Remember that sewing through the fold is a much stronger form of attachment. For the flea and the louse place, I chose minimal refolding since folds create lines of weakness that are stressed every time the plates are opened. I attached them to wide tissue hinges so that they would clear the rounding of the open text block. This is a change from the as-found arrangement, but a change that would facilitate access to the two most significant plates in the book. My final example is a 1760 edition of Philip Miller's Gardner's Dictionary. It is a rare example of a temporary publisher's binding and had been well used in the Plantation Library of Landon Carter. It was frequently called for digital imaging of its remarkable hand-colored plates and um, 
and the digital services staff requested that I prioritize the two-volume set for treatment since handling of the loose-ish plates was so difficult. And there's an example of the text and an illustration by George Arrett. Examination showed that the plate text pages had been printed on thin laid paper and while the botanical plates had been printed over the course of several years on much heavier sheets. Each text page had three entries with three corresponding plates. To form the text block, the text had been stacked with the illustrations and then oversewn. There are remnants of sewing cords laid into grooves in the spine, most likely for the purpose of board attachment. As you can see from the before treatment images, the original sewing structure did not hold up. The thread had broken, the pages had torn, and the leather had completely disappeared from the spine edges of the boards. Conservation treatment offered an opportunity to recreate the temporary publisher's binding so that the reader could see the book as Landon Carter would have, but the sewing structure would have to change. As I washed and mended the text plates, I developed a signature map to see if I could create signatures that it would include a single text page and its matching plates. My hope was that by guarding the plates and the text pages together, I could create even folios that could be sewn through the fold and onto cords, building a new structure that would move evenly and last much longer. Fortunately, Miller had been thoughtful in his arrangement of text entries and plates, and I was able to build a text block that moved evenly as the pages turned. The sewing cords laced onto new boards that were covered in leather and marbled paper that had been custom produced to match the original. Um, and there's the open ability. And so in conclusion, each of these treatments is similar in terms of process, but as illustrations became more complex factors, greater adaptations of the original structure was required in order to produce the smoothly functioning book. The conservation treatments have returned the books to their original function as a codex, preserving historical integrity, and allows the researcher to have an authentic experience with the object as it was intended. Thank you. We have Jeremy DeBell. Um, he is Director of Communications and Outreach at Rare Book School, a position he's held since September of 2013. He was previously Librarian for Social Media and Rare Books at Library Thing and an Assistant Reference Librarian at the Massachusetts Historical Society. He's received his BA from Union College, an MA, MLS degree in History and Library Science from Simmons College. Along with ongoing work on early American private libraries, Jeremy's research's uh, interests include the history of books and printing in Bermuda. He writes regular columns for Fine Books and Collections magazine, and he blogs about books and reading at, Biblio, at Philo Biblios. Jeremy is going to talk about announcing major acquisitions or responsibility. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Libraries have a responsibility to announce major acquisitions of books and manuscripts, particularly those purchased at public auction. This may not seem like a highly controversial position to be taking. <laughs> Frankly, I hope that it isn't. But I want to use this opportunity to lay out a case for why I think it is a vital component of contemporary rare book librarianship. Uh, let me note at the outset I come to the topic wearing several hats at once. First, as a librarian strongly interested in publicizing, promoting, and making available library holdings. 
Second, as a researcher who makes frequent use of rare books and manuscript material in my own work. And finally, as a regular columnist writing for fine books and collections about important public auction sales. <laughs> uh, each of these admittedly occasionally dueling perspectives informs what follows. Uh, given the widespread use by university special collections and major research libraries of various social media platforms, blogs, electronic newsletters, other forms of new and old media outreach, I'd like to propose that regular announcements via these channels of material acquired at public auction become a standard practice, much as some institutions regularly highlight various uh, recently processed manuscript collections or newly uploaded finding guides. Here's one from the Houghton. Um, that they do uh, every month um, or so, they do a post about what's, what's new and what's happening. Rather than simply processing these materials and silently adding them to the online catalog, why aren't we publicly acknowledging these acquisitions that we're making at auction? Why should we do this? First, and perhaps most obviously, libraries should be proud of what we're purchasing at public auction and should want to be sharing that news as broadly as possible. If the librarians and the curators have gone to the trouble to determine that a particular auction lot is worth adding to their collection, what could possibly be the rationale for doing so with no public notice whatsoever? Second, by making a public announcement, the OPAC black hole problem, as I call it, can be somewhat compensated for. Researchers interested in a particular auction lot's disposition might, when searching around on the web for it, actually be able to find it. Until we can solve the discoverability problems, which continue to plague many online catalogs, public notice of new acquisitions at least enhances the odds that interested readers and researchers will be able to find what they need, or at least won't have to resort to asking on Twitter until somebody comes up with the answer. There's <laughs> another example from, from Houghton. My examples happened to come from there, but John asking on Twitter, does anybody know where this happened? It turned out it was at the Beinecke, but you know, <laughs> um, there it is. Uh, recognize that different libraries will have widely varying policies when it comes to public announcements of new acquisitions. Some do it nearly immediately, at least on occasion. The Folger Shakespeare Library announced their successful purchases at the December 2015 Peary sale at Sotheby's just hours after the conclusion of the auction, following up with three detailed blog posts the following month. Uh, this was, I, I will note, an exception even for the Folger, uh, where the informal policy is not to publicize new acquisitions until the material has been received and processed. It was felt, though, that the Peary sale was of sufficient interest that an immediate announcement in this particular case was appropriate. Uh, as a, a brief sidebar, um, I was emailing with, with Aaron Blake as I was talking about using this as a case study, and she, she noted to me that the Folger also has a practice of including on-order and in-process material in the online catalog with a note that it's on-order or in-process partly as a service to fellowship applicants who find it useful to know that something is in the pipeline, even if it's not currently available for research. I don't know, I didn't quite have time to, she just told me this the other day, and I didn't quite have time to find out how uh, widespread this is, um, but it seems quite a sensible policy, and I think another one that we should, we should think about. Uh, since I had a particular interest in the Peary sale myself, as I was charged with writing a column about it, and because of the impressive level of interest it aroused among a broad group of bibliophiles, I've never seen so many people live tweeting an auction, say a book auction sale before. It was amazing. Uh, people were people were really watching what was going on and saying, "Did you get that one?" And, 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 oh, did you? You know. I started tracking other library announcements of acquisitions at this sale, 
A number of them followed closely on the heels of the Folgers. I counted at least six in the month of December, with others coming as late as July 2016, about six months after the sale. Um, obviously, each library is going to have its own policies and procedures about when you can announce these things. Though I would urge all of us to carefully examine these policies, determine whether an earlier announcement, once items are received, for example, even if they have not yet been fully processed, made available, might be feasible. I, I find the idea that such early notice may be of great use for researchers applying for fellowships to be a particularly compelling one. And I'm not entirely convinced by the argument that I have heard from several people that an announcement prior to a book or a manuscript being reading room ready would result in a dangerous stampede of researchers demanding to see materials before they can be processed and cataloged and conserved and so forth. Uh, this doesn't seem to be the case generally, and, and anecdotally, people seem to understand that you know things will be there soon, but they're coming. Why limit this to sales at public auction? In an ideal world, I wouldn't. I would extend the argument, suggest that libraries should really be announcing all their big acquisitions in a similar fashion. And again, I'm going to using a couple terms where your mileage may vary. So major, what's major? Up to you. I do see a distinction between items offered for public sale and those purchased privately or donated, in that researchers and other interested parties are more likely to know about auction sales or can at least more easily find out about them. There's a built-in where did it go factor to auctions, and sometimes you, you know something got acquired and it disappears into the ether for several months, years, before it appears in an online catalog, and that, that seems to me fairly problematic. I would argue that mo at least most libraries are already doing a fairly good job at publicizing major acquisitions and donations. More regular, perhaps more comprehensive updates would not go amiss by any means, and many of them don't talk about where they got the, the item from. And I think that's, I think if we're buying things at auction, I do think we need to be more transparent about it. With today's communication technologies, this sort of thing is much easier than it used to be. There's no need to wait for the annual report or the quarterly printed newsletter to shout from the rooftops about the exciting new things that we're buying for our collections. It's true, it still takes time out of our already busy days. But as a service to the broad community of librarians and researchers, monthly or quarterly recaps of new auction acquisitions should be a, a fairly light burden, one with a potentially significant payoff, both for the library and for the bibliosphere at large. We are all better served when material is more easily discovered. And given the relative simplicity with which this can be achieved today, it is a responsibility, which I think we should all embrace uh, to a greater degree than we are. Let me add a, a quick word about publicity, which ties into my first point. There is a real interest among the bibliophilic community writ large in what happens to items that are sold at auction. As I wrote to booksellers, curators, collectors, and others who I knew were in attendance at the Peary sale for their in-the-room impressions, many asked me when they wrote back if I had heard what became of one particular lot or another. It's true, this was probably an unusually notable sale. There aren't that many that attract quite so much attention. But I have found over eight years of writing about them that I very frequently get, get emails or, or queries in person at a book fair or wherever I am about after a column has appeared to see if I can help determine where a lot ended up, or in a case or two, if I have any idea why the bidding went so high. Usually I don't. The type of announcement I'm advocating for today will be of great interest, not just to potential researchers, but also to other librarians, to booksellers, to journalists, collectors, and so on. As we continue to strive for increased access, openness, transparency, better knowledge of auction acquisition seems a reasonable and meaningful step in the right direction. 
There is a broader argument to be made here, which I won't go into today, about the inclusion of purchase information at auction in online catalog records. Sale date, lot number, dare I say purchase price. As a way to better inform future provenance research and to increase the contextual information in catalog records. Be happy to talk more about that in questions and would love feedback about what I've proposed. Just to reiterate, please, consider the policies on when you can announce, and if you can do it, do it early and often. Thank you. So finally, the last speaker on our panel this afternoon, uh, Nina Mazinski, is the proprietor of Mazinski Rare Books, founded in 2003. Um, Mazinski Rare Books specializes in continental European printed books, manuscripts, and prints of the humanities from the incunable period to the mid-19th century. She's going to be talking about artifacts or time machines, examples from the field. Thank you, and you may wonder why I'm here, because um, it's not directly ethical. I'm not talking about provenance issues or that sort of thing. Um, thank you, Claire, for arranging this. Thank you, Catherine. When carried out intelligently, digitization is an invaluable tool that has broadened access to previously remote printed and manuscript texts and graphic objects and has opened up new vistas for scholars. Its disadvantages, as Todd showed, are also obvious to those who have worked with the objects themselves and I think to all of us attending this conference. Students and scholars who work only online have lost a sense of the physical features of books and of the history and meaning of these objects. They've also lost the very concept of connoisseurship. In reaction to this, special collections curators have tried to foster a renewed appreciation of the book as hand or machine crafted physical object by focusing their acquisitions and their approaches to exploitation of their existing resources on assembling, quote, museums of the book, in which books from different periods with various physical characteristics, formats, typography, illustrations, bindings, marks of provenance, can be used to provide students with an acquaintance with a physical book that is no longer afforded by their predominantly online study habits and leisure activities. There is a middle way between viewing the book as either a repository of easily reproducible textual or visual information or a human-made artisanal object. Those of us who are lucky enough to spend our time playing with old books professionally or vocationally know that the greatest challenge and delight of working with these time machine slash artifacts is in discovering the interplay between these aspects, between soul and body, one might say. As a colleague of mine put it, every book is like a crime scene. <laughs> <laughs> Booksellers are bibliographical detectives. Our livelihood relies on our ability to see what is in front of us, to read and interpret the whole book, to reconstruct its history, this means that we must follow where it leads us, which requires us, very importantly, to abandon all preconceptions. One often acquires a book, manuscript, or other document under the assumption that it is something quite different from what it turns out to be. And beware the bookseller or cataloger who is loath to open his or her eyes to take a good hard look at the book. What was it that Mabillon said? All I want are eyes, but I want expert eyes. Mm -hmm. A book must be approached from several angles as an object, a conveyor of text or image, a witness to and product of historical printing vagaries, production methods and publishing pressures, and a social vehicle imbued with a kaleidoscope of meanings for its creators and manufacturers, author, publisher, etc., and for its readers, both contemporary readers and later readers. 
Claire Eager suggested to me that this approach is an ethical relationship with the book in that it entails an attempt to interpret and represent its many facets honestly and correctly, accurately. I'll try to show now with uh, a couple of rather humble examples how this interpretative um, uh, approach can play out. Here's an example of a book that contains more than meets the eye. When I bought this unprepossessing German quarto, which was quite scruffy, I knew that it was rare and had lots of illustrations, but I assumed that it was simply a late 16th century hagiography and that at most I might find out something about the source of the woodcuts, which looked oddly archaic for a 1587 imprint. Mm -hmm. The book turned out to have unusually intimate connections with the Benedictine Abbey of Einsiedeln in Switzerland, home of a venerated statue of the Virgin, a so-called Black Madonna, and still one of the most heavily visited pilgrimage sites in Europe. The subject of the first part was the life of St. Meinrath, the ninth century patron saint of the Abbey, who had received the statue of the Virgin, etc. It took a few minutes of research to ascertain that the author of part one, Ulrich Wittwiller, was at the time abbot of Einsiedeln, which he remained until his death in 1600, and that his text was a modern historical formulation of the medieval German legend of St. Meinrath. As I browsed the text, I realized that, in fact, the book was a compilation of several works. The second part contained a miracle book relating 52 miracles enacted by the Virgin of Einsiedeln between the 1530s and 1586, thus up to date. This was by one Joachim Müller, identified as a monk and preacher of Einsiedeln. It also contained several biographies of other saints and patrons with connections to Einsiedeln. All were translated by Müller. Also in the mix were a couple of Latin encomia of the Virgin by two contemporary humanists, one a professor of medicine at Ingolstadt and still alive, the other a Frenchman who was only recently deceased. In other words, this was in, 18, in 1587 an up-to-date handbook containing just about everything a contemporary visitor to Einsiedeln would need to know. Browsing further, this time online, I discovered a bibliography of works associated with Einsiedeln by one Karl Benziger, published in 1912, and now, thank heavens, digitized. <laughs> From Benziger, I learned that most of the archaic-looking woodcut illustrations used in Whitfiller's text, I'll just show you a couple, had been printed from the same woodblocks used by the Basel printer Michael Furter for at least, at least six 15th and early 16th century editions of the medieval Passion of St. Meinrad. The Furter blocks had themselves been copied from a 15th century block book of the Meinrad legend, of which two copies survive, one in the Bavarian State Library and the other in Einsiedeln. Oddly, these same blocks were also used to illustrate several other editions of various texts relating to St. Meinrad, printed in different German and Swiss towns by different printers well into the 17th century. When a block wore out, a close copy would be cut to take its place. This was getting interesting. Uh, I, just to note that in spite of the many editions, all these many editions, most are very rare, and this is the golden rule for popular printing. Such illustrated pilgrimage texts were heavily used being devotional objects themselves, and hence only a tiny portion of their original print run survived. <coughs> I dug around in my library and I learned that the printer, Abraham Gemperlin, was originally a bookbinder and bookseller from Freiburg in Breisgau, who had moved to the Swiss town of the same name, oddly, in 1585, having been commissioned by that city to set up its first printing press. He or the city purchased his press and types or type matrices from two different printers of Basel. And the woodcuts? 
The woodblocks Gemperlin used for this edition had very probably been commissioned by and continued to belong to the Einsiedeln monks themselves. It was the Abbey of Einsiedeln who had commissioned this book, and apparently all the other earlier and later editions containing stories and pictures of their patron saint. This explained the odd reappearance of the same woodcuts in different editions printed in unrelated towns. For nearly two centuries, the Einsiedeln monks appear to have farmed out their woodblocks to printers whom they commissioned to print handbooks for pilgrims. My copy also contained a variant typesetting from the digitized Bavarian State Library copy, and that's totally par for the course with early printed books. So it became clear that this rough, worn Einsiedeln pilgrims book printed at the first press of Freiburg, Switzerland, and illustrated with the Abbey's woodblocks, was a humble representative of a long-printed tradition which perpetuated the venerable literary heritage of the Abbey, whose scriptorium had been active from the time of its founding in the 10th century. The book also opened a window onto an interesting byway of publishing history, that is, the monastic ownership of printing material, and specifically woodblocks, which I think deserves further scholarly study, as far as I know. Since I've been speaking of monastic publishing, here's a curious book produced by and for nuns in which the bibliographical collation tells or intimates a story but does not afford a conclusive identification of the copy's precise purpose or function, and the book itself tells the story. This is a rule book for novices, and it, by the way, this was bound in a very simple parchment case binding, nothing special, not case binding, a binding. This is a rule book for novices of a Cistercian convent, the Royal Abbey of Saint-Loup in Saint-Jean-de-Bray, close to Orléans. No other copies are recorded in OCLC or any other COPAC or library catalog, as far as I could ascertain. It was apparently printed in 1690, although, as you can see, the date in the imprint was deleted and corrected in manuscript, and it was probably written by the then abbess of Saint-Loup, Louise-Charlotte de Châtillon, she was abbess from 1685 to 1711, who ordered the printing, as you can see from the imprint, and who signed the preface. The colophon states that it was printed by Antoine Maury without giving a place. It's a bit odd because Maury worked in Rouen, which isn't close to the abbey. I don't know, don't know the story. In any case, the book was clearly privately printed for the use of the novices, and perhaps the sisters were involved in its production, as it certainly bears signs of amateurish labors. The collation is completely wacky. <laughs> and please note, of course, this is the collation of this copy. It's not an ideal collation since I knew, I don't know of any other copies. <laughs> the complexity of its makeup reflects the fact that the copy contains several rearrangements intended to rectify textual errors or to implement changes in the text. Some leaves were canceled from gatherings, others were inserted, canceled leaves were moved, Page numbers were reprinted, leaving three numbers on one page on the left, <laughs> or corrections were written in by hand. You can see the, the corrected page number on that uh, page on the right. And there are two pasted and printed correction slips, this one and this one, which was further corrected. <laughs> this particular leaf was a cancel that was actually reinserted backwards, as you could see from the collation before. To top it off, I'll go back to that. Um, to top it all off, the last two pages contain an errata list that does not entirely correspond to the text as assembled here, showing, showing that the errata were printed before the errors were noticed and the cancels and correction slips apply. I'm glad. I don't, I've never had an audience who would laugh at a collection. This is, this is 
is a high point. <laughs> I have to say. Oh God, five minutes. All right. Unfortunately, without comparison to another copy, I couldn't figure out whether it was a proof or I think it was owned by the nuns and somebody fiddled around with it. Uh, here's an example in which collation tells a different sort of story. This is an Almanach Galon. I actually bought a real book. Um, I can show some pictures. Um, it's not this book. That's another book. Almanac Galon were completely frivolous descendants of traditional almanacs. The only traits that they retained were yearly calendars and small formats, usually 24-mo or 32-mo. They were intended for ladies' or gentlemen's pocketbooks, and the text consisted usually of love poems or songs. Some had gaming tables where you could record your losses and wins at the card table. And to diversify their market, almanac publishers produced luxury copies in several ways. For example, one could order the engravings hand-colored. Here are a couple of examples, both published by the pioneer of the genre, um, Jean-Pierre Joubert. The second one here, published at the beginning of the revolution, shows a hot air balloon or somebody falling out of a balloon. <laughs> or the bindings, could be, they could be provided with extra features such as discrete mirrors or pockets for love notes inside the covers, or onlaid mica, or in, in, uh, on, mica on the bindings, or inset miniature paintings on the bindings. This almanac is now at Penn. It's one of the best ones I had. Um, uh, and the Janet, that publisher, was the son-in-law of, of Joubert and inherited the business. These bindings were either produced or commissioned by the publishers themselves, commissioned. They were always case bindings in which the text block was simply stitched into the covers. They could thus be reused yearly, and they were. The boards would be covered in gold block leather, usually goatskin, or in embroidered te textile, usually satin or silk, with designs in metallic and colored threads, sequins, and so on. And here are two different examples of um, embroidered bindings. Bibliographically speaking, what is interesting about the Parisian almanacs is they were often constructed in an unorthodox manner, not used elsewhere in European book printing, presumably because they were produced by binders, known as l'olieurs d'horreur, who were not members of the Parisian Guild of Printers, which was limited to 36 members, and who therefore did not inherit the weight of tradition. So there, these almanacs are built up in a sort of Russian doll construction, which I have dubbed nested choirs, i.e. two to three choirs inserted one inside the other. Sometimes, though, there's a single choir of 36 leaves. I've seen that. Often there's either a fold-out uh, letterpress calendar around the outside or a, a, a calendar on the inside. Sometimes you find both, and in the revolutionary period you sometimes find a Gregorian calendar and a Republican calendar. Sometimes a letterpress choir is interleaved with engravings, always in an even number because they were on conjugate leaves, and they were simply inserted in the right place. All of these methods are logical adaptations to small formats. I've never seen this described in the literature on almanacs, most of which is quite old, but since first noticing it, I've found many instances of it, and I brought, just to, to end, um, this example, which I can't really pass around, but you can see the calendar is on the outside. And then there's uh, an engraved title, which has a stub at the end, at the very end. Uh, then there's a, a six-leaf unsigned letterpress choir containing the Republican calendar, right here. And that wraps around. And then there's uh, 12, there are 12 bifolia, or 24 leaves of text and illustrations entirely engraved, in which the text leaf, each text leaf alternates with an engraved leaf. Mm -hmm. And then in the very middle, and the engravings would have been all printed on one big sheet, is, um, and then cut up, actually. 
Then at the very center, there's a 12-leaf letterpress choir, signed A, <laughs> containing lyrics for songs. So everything that I've learned about almanacs was taught me by the books themselves. One would be hard-pressed to understand their, understand their construction from digital images. Thank you. So thank you, everyone, for those excellent and intriguing papers. I hope that's going to give everyone um, fodder for some good questions. We have about 15 minutes. Is that right? Um, I don't know if uh, speakers want to move to the chairs behind the table. To I don't know where anyone wants to start. That's oh, such a lot of food for thought. <laughs> that oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, question back there. <laughs> yeah. Please, so I'm just following up on your your invitation to please tell us more about the recovering the said, like the diversity of the deep past or the diversity of history. Yeah, something that I didn't explicitly say, but that I believe to be true is, I, uh, you know, the past itself is diverse. It's only our collections that were built by people with expressing a particular point of view that um, makes us look at it. At, at our history and think that there's no diversity there. Um, it's sort of that Game of Thrones thing, right? Like we create this medieval past that's very white, but in fact we know as scholars, as historians, that like, you know, black people weren't invented in 1866. They've been <laughs> on the planet for a real long time and they left traces of their history all over and we can collect that history. Um, so in some ways, I, I mean, I, one of the, the ideas that I have, or it's not an idea, but I think one of the, the calls to arms that we have as um, purveyors of history is to look at the collections we already have and take away our perception of them as white and see what diversity is in fact there. Um, and that can be things as simple as when you teach Augustine, do you teach him as a father of Western Christianity or do you teach him as a North African writer coming from a place of, um, of what's modern-day Algeria, um, learning about um, religion in what's modern-day Tunisia? You know, do you teach Avicenna as an important um, classical text, or do you teach him as an Iranian writer? You know, there, there, there's, um, there's just a lot of ways of looking at the past. Great. Uh, Claudia? Yeah, and one, one thing. I mean, this idea of it as being a white past, right? Um, you know, that's a point of view imposed that's really not accurate either. Yeah, that's a, a point of view that comes, you know, in this development in American society, warped to rationalize slavery, white and black. Exactly. And there's great, you know, um, great variety in European culture and. Actually, the West sacked itself. If you want to look at these kinds of examples of monastic culture, these are books ripped out of their societal context that it's all a result of capitalism in the 19th century and, and put into a new context in, in largely US libraries um, with all the wealth that was acquired in the late 19th and through the 20th century. And so questioning all of that past also and how it's interpreted. I just want to make a 
like the rare books and manuscripts section that you were once chair of and I am now chair of, so it's nice to be in the same room. Uh, and the next chair is sitting right next to me in this chair. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we we are uh, exam we have a charged committee that's starting this year to work on the new to update our ethics statement. And so very interesting times to do that. These are the audience intentionality, agency, collecting, everything, and particularly with what is our role in making the digitized surrogate something in the marketplace when it doesn't need to be, when it's in the public domain. Those are big questions that I hope our community can talk about as best practices so we can go back to our institutions and point at something called best practice rather than doing it as critique arena of well-intentioned colleagues, why don't we just capitalize together using the term of art force and try to do this as one. So if you would stay tuned for that ethics committee's output in the coming year, so we're excited about it. Great point, thanks. Yeah, Claire? Yeah, so um, I had sort of promised Nina that I would, you know, <laughs> Uh, answer Explain. her, her, her uh, question. Why of, am I here? Of, oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know if, 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 if people will go along with me on this, but you know, I was hearing all of these papers. Um, you know, sort of, uh, among many other interesting things, talk about sort of the different uh, constituencies, constituencies to whom we have ethical responsibilities, and among them, what I heard were readers, creators, um, underrepresented communities, historically abused or persecuted communities. Um, Publics of various sorts, estates, libraries, students, um, and so I think you know, Nina, you were talking about you know things that you know students and researchers and, and everyone can only learn from the actual book. My my sort of question for everyone in this room is, to what extent do we also have ethical responsibilities to the objects themselves, as um, obviously as, as historical artifacts that bear traces of human lives that we may or may not have been you know institu institutionally collecting or remembering, um, but also, I mean, in the sense that we have, we are somewhat used to thinking of it in the sort of the charismatic megafauna of objects, you know, the Dresden mm -hmm. Cathedral, the Coventry Cathedral, Palmyra, you know, mm -hmm. but, but you know, these almanacs are part of that object ecosystem as well, I suggest. Yeah, I agree, yeah. I mean, my interaction every day is mainly with books. So I don't have to interact with people much. <laughs> so I have, you know, I, I, I feel like I, I have a, I do agree with you about that. It's the books teach us. Yes. In terms of the responsibility for the object that we attend to. There's an interesting question to think about the mediation of it too, especially if we are talking about you know the, the physical books and the digitized side of it. And sometimes the, the digitization process itself, you know, puts on the new layers on top of it. So I was I was actually like kind of questioning the, the missing text. Is it the production error is it or is it the scanning that is adjusting an image that you can't read the, the text is there? So those are the kind of questions that we need to answer, we need to be questioning, like, oh, is this the thing that is in the physical book, or is this something that the digitization process has newly introduced? So we need that kind of literacy, too. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. that, I would say, is the question. Good point. You had a question? Claire, were you also, with, with your sort of reference to megafauna, are you <laughs> getting at the notion of, like, well, there's 
the big fancy books, but then there's the more humble books and or well, collection items. Yeah, like art artifacts people. that like there are artifacts. I mean, I mean, in this week that we like withdrew from UNESCO, uh, <laughs> I've been on the train on the way up here. You know, there are cultural artifacts that the global community has agreed are worthy of preservation and study in and of themselves. Um, but you know, as th those of us who yeah are devoted to like the, the beautiful books that you were conserving, but also the little random ones that we may know little about, you know, to, both for the people who created them and for just whatever they have to tell us as objects, uh, you know, to what extent are we obligated to think about them as well? Well, what I would say as a conservator is I don't choose what I I figure out how I rely on curators. Uh, yeah, um, I rely on researchers. So if a researcher comes in and uses the collection, and it doesn't have to be something super fabulous, if they find value in it, and if the circ rate goes up, and they create value, they can articulate what makes this humble book or this collection of letters valuable, then that helps us elevate it. And either it gets you know prioritized for conservation treatment if it needs it, or it just makes people say, okay, we need to do a little more for this, maybe update the catalog record. It, it brings that item to light. So we do rely on researchers, we do rely on students, we do rely on faculty. I'm kind of hoping that this conference makes people realize that we're counting on everyone to go back to their collections and, and you know, engage with the physical artifact, whether it's a book, whether it's a, a, a poster, or, or you know, the AIDS quilt, what, whatever you have. Um, we count on the research community to keep the collections active. So I think my my question, maybe or observation, if um, follows on Claire and Alyssa's comments, that um, those of us working in research libraries for the past couple of decades have seen there's a, a wish that digitizing special collections and general collections is going to reduce access and preserve materials. What we find is because those surrogates don't represent all of the things we've been talking about. It increases access, but at the same time, I have, I'm here to say, administratively in the library world, the idea that something's been digitized reduces the, the feeling of urgency about conserving these materials. Mm -hmm. And we in the conservation world aren't always part of the conversations to, um, to keep conservation in, in part of the project. And do any of you see a role for the rare book world in um, imposing ethical standards on institutions about how we maintain conservation in the face of these competing obligations. Question for Jeremy. It's vital. I mean, you can't you can't not have conservation, just like you can't not have cataloging. Yeah. <laughs> and, and everyone would say that, but in fact, yeah. I think the dirty secret is it's not always happening. Mm -hmm. And how do we make it happen? You have to get the people to make the money decisions. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. I, I think at this particular moment in, in, in our history, this is <coughs> for access and to really justify our existence and our rel relevance to broad um, swath of the population has diminished the importance of our role as custodians of material. And that custodianship goes along with the conservation preservation. It's a bad one. 
show you like went to the dark side. Don't tweet that. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear, so I hear what you're saying with the balance and all that stuff. But here's my thing. I, I understand. I do think there could be a stampede um, because because we do a lot of outreach. Like I I think that's the secret to a lot of this is. Our library's ethos is every librarian is an outreach librarian, no matter where you are Good. in the library. And so um, if you're in preservation, cataloging, um, uh, collections, archives, all that stuff. So um, I was, I was at, and I do think maybe the, the acquisition of the new work may just make it a blip. But um, if it's a large archival collection, yep. my archivist would kill me sure. if I said, I'm going to announce it because right. all of a sudden we get 99 requests for it. Right. And even then, I, I really don't like it when I go to exhibitions and I don't see the call number. Like, we, people need to know that you can actually see this later. It's not just an object that you can't get to. So. I like what you said, though, and I'm trying to think about a sweet spot. Well, there's time. definitely a difference yeah, between yeah. a huge archival collection yeah. and, and, a, and, a, and a book or you know something. Right. Like that. But I, I'm just saying, if you're processing, yeah. if you're building, you know, something that requires a certain amount of, of, of guiding, of mediation, if it's a you know a huge archive, right. that's a, that's a totally different thing. And certainly, there should be there should be everybody's going to have different policies, yeah. and those policies are going to depend on on the thing itself. So yeah, I don't want. That's why I was intentionally vague in a few places. I, I didn't want to be like, six, yeah, and, you know, and within and a month you should. Know. My pushback is that within a month the list looks doesn't look as exciting to me. Is <laughs> I got to put a story around it, right? I want to put a story around. We got this. I talked to the faculty member. Yeah. The student comes in. I I pounce every damn student that walks into my yeah. place. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you looking at? You know. And they love it, right? I, don't, I guess they love it. They come back. So. <laughs> <laughs> And you, you know I will do that. But the thing is, I want them to know, like, I get really excited. So I think a lot of this is the outreach part, like that there's kind of a, a, a passive way to announce something and a really proactive way. Yeah. So I do want to build a list. I've taken your advice, and I want an, a monthly list. But I am going to always advocate for the proactive outreach of your acquisition to target it. I have a question for you, Jeremy, which is that um, you seem to be following the Harvard social media, but do you actually read the Chapel Hill where book Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know if we've got the followers. I have about I have about five hundred rare books blogs in my in my uh, RSS feed, which I still use. That maybe you're the like spider charge well, of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think. I mean, I, for a lot of us, I think our problem is the opposite. That we're doing lots of outreach and like we're no, you know, you're like really are trying to say we've got this stuff mm -hmm. and. Yeah. But but as, but 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 as I as I said to you yesterday, I think if you don't do it, even the people who aren't subscribing to the blog and reading every post are going to be able to find it when they search. Yeah. And if you just right. put it in the OPAC, they can't find it. it, <laughs> they it, can't it find right. On the web, people will find it at some point. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I had a, was doing dealing with major questions about that micrographia, and I did a town hall presentation to the library staff, and then I took made a PDF of that of a PowerPoint, put it on our departmental website, and then three months later, some guy out of the blue was like, "Oh yeah, that that micrographia, that that um, that plate of the louse, that's from Wonders of the Microscope, London, 1806. That's not from micrographia." And I was like, "Thank you. <laughs> how about you know? How about this one?" So yeah, people will find it. I mean. So it's you're competing with a lot, especially on a college campus, and especially the students who are 
engaged in all kinds of things, and you might be working on a blog post about your books, and then Hamilton comes along and everyone's looking for your Hamilton. Yes. So now our Angelica Schuyler church letters are all of a sudden like way up in the conservation priority, and okay, but then we can say to you know our our admin. The kids are here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we have at least uh, maybe one and then more questions and one after that. Uh, there's someone behind Claudia that hasn't spoken yet, and then maybe I'll get back to Claudia. Yeah, I just I wanted to say just a little bit in contrast to what Athena was saying. Um, in contrast to outreach, um, as somebody who was a curator for eight or nine years, and I'm no longer a curator, but I err on the side of enthusiasm. I think that's something that a lot of us can say. However, I do think that in this field, there are a lot of people who, I don't know if I would say that they're more of the old guard, perhaps, but there are a number of people who are sort of like smog with this hoard of treasure. And so there are these issues of access and preservation and all these things. I think that, that all of us want people to access things, but I also think that we have an ethics issue in this still in this field where there are people like Smog who don't want anybody to access mm -hmm. um, their treasures and who have a great deal of power. I don't know what can be done about it. Maybe they'll die off. There are people, but, but it's been significant. It's still there and it's still prevalent. And I just want to throw that out there. So. Yep. Okay. Um, I just would like to, I guess, make a point as someone who is not a curator, but um, whose favorite activity to bring groups of classes, students to is to the rare book special collections. It's the best class ever, you know? So I love it. And I just wanna, I mean, you guys know that, but I was particularly thinking about Elizabeth's talk and how um, you could incorporate perhaps in these moments with students where you have them captive, I'm, some some ways to talk about spaces within a collection that aren't there. There's a lot of conversation here about what our acquisitions are, what do we have, what do we not have, what do we get, and a, and a more um, sort of, I don't know, uh, expansive way of thinking of what a collection is, and, and even, I mean, I'm even imagining a display with a missing spot, with like, with holes in it to sort of say, these are things we wish existed, and these are things we love to have that aren't a, a codex that might be um, a handwritten uh, African something. I mean, I, I, I'm not coming up with good examples. I just mean, I think there's a way to capture what we're all getting at in a way that sort of de-emphasizes ownership while still saying we have a collection of things. Like, this is us, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm making any sense. <laughs> I mean, I think that like, uh, my answer is always to be Indiana Jones. Like, it belongs in a museum, does it? You know, we, I think we need to ask ourselves that, basically. Yeah. Um, and there are, I think, um, you know, Claudia's point is really right that, um, you know, collections are built on um, the backs of things that, you know, there's lots of stuff in our libraries that's there because of war, because of theft, because of um, industrial capitalism, and um, we don't necessarily have to collect that way going forward. You know, we, we may say, you know, we're a U.S. institution and we reflect a certain cultural value and maybe uh, we teach about these materials, but we don't actually hold them because they are better off in situ um, with the cultures that created them. So, uh, Claire, it looks like we're out of time. Do you, should we need to cut it off now, or? No. All right. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. I think our, speak our speakers, I'm sure, will be happy to continue the conversation.